Hello, thank you for joining the podcast of First Church. I'm glad you could be with us. This message is from the Life of Holiness series taught by Dr. David Bernard, and uh, this is the second message in the series, and the message title was Male and Female, Uh, and it was a great word, and so I pray you're blessed by this message again today. Let's go to the Word of the Lord. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27, I think I have it on PowerPoint using the New King James. And last time I talked about the life of holiness, dealt with some principles of God's Word, the importance of separation from the sin and the world system, and dedication to God and His will. Holiness encompasses the whole of Christian life, uh, and it talks about your attitudes, it talks about your, your uh, speech, But we're going to focus on a few practical things tonight. Turning to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And we'll look at an important principle of God's Word that is neglected and even under attack today. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so I want to talk to you tonight about male and female. You may be seated. Now, this may seem to be a very simple thought to the extent that you wonder why in the world should we teach a whole lesson on that. But it's not so simple. It's interesting to me when I was uh, attending Rice University, which is a few years ago now, uh, 74 to 78, uh, and at that time I was taking some psychology classes along with some others, and there was a famous researcher from Johns Hopkins University named... John Money, who had come out with a new book as a revolutionary. At that time, this was strange and unknown. Now it's classic teaching in the universities. But he basically said that whether you're male or female is a socially constructed gender. It's just you're a baby is born neutral, and the way they are raised by their family and by their society determines what they think they are. And the practical aspect of this is that uh, he had some examples. There are rare cases of genetic and other types of deformity. Uh, There are even situations where a baby is being circumcised and the operation goes awry. And so what he was saying, in all these cases, you just pick whether you want the baby to be male or female and you just surgically make them look like whatever you want them to look like. It doesn't matter because however you raise them is however they will be. And so whatever's most convenient, whatever you like, or whatever the circumstances dictate, you just make them fit that and everything will be okay. And that is mainstream theology, if you will, in our secular university systems today, that gender is socially constructed. Uh, However, uh, it's been discredited by recent research. In fact, some of the very people that John Money operated on, they grew up to become adults, and they had so many psychological problems, some even, uh, I think one even committed suicide because uh, it, a, little, a boy, a little boy that they assigned him to be female. And all growing up, he thought he was a boy. And turns out, as he became an adult and his parents revealed this, he was a boy. We now know, of course, that before a child is even born, hormones flood their brain and start shaping their brain to be masculine or feminine. So that is determined genetically. And even before a person is born, they already have the formation there. But 
despite that, in our society, let me just read you something here from Wikipedia. And uh, Wikipedia is not always uh, authoritative, but this is precisely my point. I'm not trying to be authoritative. I'm showing you what people think in our world. And for that purpose, Wikipedia is excellent because it shows you what people are thinking. This is the real world we're dealing with. It says gender identity is the gender or genders or lack thereof a person self-identifies as. It is not necessarily based on biological fact, either real or perceived, nor is it always based on sexual orientation. The gender identities one may choose from include male, female, both, somewhere in between, and they have a name for that, third gender, gender or neither. Now, I didn't want to go too much further than this. In fact, you know, I teach uh, that you should have a guard on your internet, and uh, I've tried various methods. The one that I use, it, it doesn't physically block you, but it reports every place you go, and it gives you a score. So I get a report, my wife gets a report, so uh, any use of the computer, we see, no matter who used it, we see what happens. Well, I'm sure this started scoring because I wasn't attempting to go anywhere I shouldn't, and I didn't, but... Uh, the very nature of the subject is, uh, lends itself to this. Note, read a little bit further. So I had to go a little bit further. Transgender, here is, here is one of the, uh, the choices people make, is the state of one's gender identity, self-identification as woman, man, or neither. Not matching one's assigned sex, identification by others as male or female based on physical genetic sex. Transgender people may identify as heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual, polysexual, or asexual. Some may consider conventional sexual orientation labels inadequate or inapplicable. And then going a step further, the terms third gender, because I didn't know what that could possibly mean, so I had to find out. The terms third gender and third sex describe individuals who are considered to be neither women nor men as well as a social category present in those societies who recognize three or more genders. The term third is usually understood to mean other. Some anthropologists and sociologists have described fourth, fifth, and many genders. Now, here you go. And like I said, you probably don't want to go much further than that because it just gets either more incomprehensible or more ungodly the further you go. And I don't mean to be uh, inappropriate here tonight, but this is the real world. And uh, used to, we would make sure we didn't talk about certain subjects in mixed company, and I still think we should, should have some clear guidance there. But the fact is, our kids in grade school are exposed to these kind of concepts. If the church doesn't speak out to them, it doesn't hide them from the kids and the youth. It just means the church doesn't have anything to say about what everybody else is telling them about. So we're forced to be plain about what the Bible teaches and what we believe because if we don't, we are the only silent voice and we've got to give clear guidance. Now, there are a few, uh, we live in a fallen world, we're members of a sinful race, genetically we've degenerated from the original creation, there are lots of physical illnesses and components of psychological and mental illnesses that, that have genetic components. We don't live in, in a perfect world. Uh, and so there are a few uh, situations where there are genetic uh, problems and situations that you try to deal with individually and so forth. But as you can see from these quotes, 
People try to take those concepts and paint a broad brush and say, we as adults choose whatever we want to be in any kind of categorization, any kind of sexual identity, any kind of sexual partners, any kind of relationship that we choose. And that is the politically correct teaching in our society today. And it's rapidly becoming the law in our society today. This is the way where we live. Now, in this kind of situation, we're not attacking any individual. But we are against a philosophy. We are against an ideology. We can have compassion and love and, and hope for individuals who are caught in an, an unchristian environment, unchristian society, and unchristian ways of thinking. And we don't offer condemnation, we offer hope. But we do believe the Bible gives clear instruction. And where people have not followed that, we need to pray for them and help them so that they will conform to the Word of God. In the midst of all this, the church has to send a clear signal. It has to sound a certain sound. And one of the most basic principles in creation is that God created male and female. The church needs to stand up for God's plan in society and in families. There is a difference between man and woman. The roles of husband and wife are equally important, but they are different. The roles of father and mother are equally important, but they are different. And the church stands for this kind of difference. Now, how do we bear witness in our society? One way is distinction in dress. I'd like to give you scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. Again, reading from the New King James. Deuteronomy 22, 5 says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are abomination to the Lord your God. Now let me just focus on this verse for a few minutes. Notice this clear distinction of male and female, which is a creation principle, is supposed to be expressed in our outward appearance and in the way we dress. Now some have said, well, that's the law of Moses, that's the Old Testament, it's not relevant. Well, that's, you can't be uh, so simplistic in that because all of God's Word is valuable and important to us. Now, we understand there are teachings in the Old Testament that are ceremonial in nature, that are types and foreshadowings of greater truth to be found in the New Testament. For example, we don't offer animal sacrifices. We understand those sacrifices point to Christ. Now that we have the supreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we don't need to reenact the ceremonies and the types. But in this case, the principle of male and female is not a, a ceremony that points to some greater truth. What's the greater truth than the fact that God created us male and female? That's a creation principle. So this is an Old Testament application of a creation principle. It still applies in the New Testament because we are still under God's creation. Notice this principle came before sin. It's not merely a reaction to sin. It's the way God intends for humans to be. And notice, he said, those who violate this distinction are abomination unto the Lord your God. Now, there are some things in the Old Testament that God told Israel, you're to do this, you're not to do that. This is going to be your identity. This will be an abomination to you. You shall not do that. So he says, you are to despise this. You are not to practice this. But notice in this verse, he's not merely speaking to Israel. He's not merely saying, this is something you shall not do and shall not like. But he says, this is something I don't like. Now, God doesn't change in his character. 
He doesn't change in what he likes and what he dislikes. If we find that a thousand years ago God liked something, we know he still likes that. If we find something that God didn't like a thousand years ago, we know he still doesn't like it today. And he says, those who violate this distinction, I don't like what they're doing. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. Now, I don't, what this simply says, in every culture, there's, there's something distinctive about a man's clothing that a woman shouldn't wear. And there's something distinctive about a woman's clothing that a man shouldn't wear. It doesn't mean everything has to be as different as possible. Some articles of clothing are similar. But there is a distinction. Whatever is distinctive in your culture, whatever is distinctively male in your culture, that should be reserved for the male. Whatever is distinctly female in your culture, that should be reserved for the female. Now, we understand cultures differ. But in every culture... Historically, there has been a distinction. And to the extent there is not a distinction, that culture violates God's word, and God's word needs to supersede culture. Now, some will say, well, I thought they all wore robes in the Bible. There are very dis distinct articles of clothing with different names. Even to this day, an Arab man would not be caught in a woman's robe. In fact, you may recall in the battles with Al-Qaeda in Pakistan, uh, that when the militants were stormed in a, the Red Mosque and they tried to escape, one of their leaders wore a woman's clothing and they took pictures of him. They caught him and they took pictures and publicized the pictures because they felt the shame of him being uh, pictured in public in a woman's garment would be just as much punishment as anything else they could do or just as much discrediting him as a Muslim man as anything else. So that shows you that even in cultures that we might consider more like Bible days to have similarity of garments like robes, there is a distinctive masculine attire, a distinctive feminine attire. Now, in our society, historically, uh, in Western society, uh, the man has worn pants, the woman has worn a dress or a skirt. Of course, we know that's breaking down. So some would say, well, Brother Bernard, it's all, it doesn't matter to now, the culture has changed. Well, here's the problem. If the culture had evolved into two different forms of dress, we would go with the culturally appropriate mode. But what the culture has evolved into is breaking down the distinction. The way you can see that is there are some pants that are more feminine than others. But if a woman is going to wear pants, she doesn't say, well, I'll only wear frilly pants. I'll only wear pink pants. She goes and wears whatever pants she wants to wear because in her mind, the barrier has been broken. It doesn't matter from that point. So, now if I were here in a dress, most of you probably wouldn't agree with that. Even probably if I went to some other denomination, most of them probably wouldn't uh, really agree with me teaching in a dress. So our culture still has the concept of distinction when it comes to the man but it's broken down the concept when it comes to the woman. But actually, in God's plan, it should be the same. There shouldn't be any uh, difference in the way we treat the man and the woman, each having distinction. Someone said, well, you're, you're making it hard on the woman. No, it's, it's the culture that's put the pressure. Actually, the principle is the same for male and for female. And you've probably seen this, but to the extent that you are going to find a distinction in our culture... Uh, you do see, if you go to uh, public buildings and you look for the signs of the restroom, it has a little silhouette, 
someone in pants and a silhouette of someone in dress. That's still how our culture makes the distinction when we're required to make a distinction. Now, to apply this, we're basically, we're not talking about uh, in, in your bedroom. We're not talking about when you're taking a shower. We're not talking about in private. Basically, we're talking about this public witness. So when you're in public with male and female mixed company, outside of your family, outside of your privacy, this is the witness that we bear to the world, and it shows God's plan for us. Now, we could talk about, and I'll leave this up to the pastor, basically, but people ask questions, what about recreation? What about you know, certain situations? I do feel, what about jobs? And, and uh, there are some places where even the school system tries to mandate. I feel that as Christians, we can explain the principle and ask to be allowed to follow our teaching. We can also find just because you would not wear something on Sunday night doesn't mean it couldn't be appropriate in another environment. There are ways to choose something that's fitting, let's say that's distinctively fitting and appropriate for recreation or distinctively masculine. There are some things that I might wear when I'm walking in the woods that I probably wouldn't wear on Sunday night. But it can be distinctively masculine and appropriate for the occasion. Now, just for fun, I'm from Texas, so... uh, By the way, we're not the only ones, but there are a lot of other conservative Christian groups, the Orthodox Jews, they have websites where they sell clothing that's gender appropriate. Uh, The Muslims do this too. And of course, throughout human history, somehow in the American frontier, the pioneer women, they somehow managed to be pioneer women. But let me give you an example. I'm from Texas. Maybe you'll like this, maybe you won't. But Kate the Bronco Buster, it's a true story, 1890. At age 13, Kate Anderson had a contract to kill cougars that had been killing stock. She wore skirts and rode side saddle because no lady would ride astride. That would be unfeminine. Uh, Once she lowered herself on a rope over a mesa to kill a cougar on a ledge. Another time, tangled up with dogs and cougars in a fight, she killed an 11-foot cougar by jamming the rifle barrel down its throat. Then she became a bronchbuster. Sometimes it took a ride of 20 miles to subdue the bronco. She always wore full skirts with little lead weights in the hem. That's interesting. That was just expected in society, that you found a way to be masculine or feminine in your dress. Okay, moving right along. In the New Testament, we find the same distinction expressed in here. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll take a look at verses 5 through 6 and then go down to verses 13 through 16. Now, I've chosen uh, today's English version because it seems to put it in very uh, simple terms. It's easy to understand. So I've got, I don't know if you can read it from the distance where you are, but uh, you can read it in your own Bible if you wish, and I'll help you read it here. Any woman who prays or speaks God's message in public worship with nothing on her head disgraces her husband. There is no difference between her and a woman whose head has been shaved. If the woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair. And since it is a shameful thing for a woman to shave her head or cut her hair, she should cover her head. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God in public worship with nothing on her head? Why nature itself teaches you that long hair is a disgraceful thing for a man, but is a woman's pride. Her long hair has been given her to serve as a recovering. But if anyone wants to argue about it, 
All I have to say is that neither we nor the churches of God have any other custom in worship. It's, it's pretty plain that there is a distinction between male and female in our hair. Now, people ask, well, what about the Greek text? What does the Greek say? And some say the Greek means this, and some say it doesn't mean this, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I looked up in Bauer's uh, lexicon, which would be considered probably the standard. It's gone through various editions, but this would be considered a classic standard lexicon, which in other, simply means the words are in Greek and the definitions are in English. And here it's what it says uh, about several words here that I'll put on the screen. Uh, zuaro means have oneself shaved. So where it's translated shaved, it means shave. And kiro, uh, which is translated in the King James as shear or shorn, in the today's English ver uh, version, cut, it means to cut one's hair or have one, one's hair cut. And then komao, which is having long hair, uh, it means in the Greek, and here's what the lexicon says, wear long hair, let one's hair grow long. Greek men do not do this. Now, even though various men had somewhat long hair, compared to modern uh, barbering techniques, still they did not simply let their hair grow long in that society, that culture. Also, I think it's instructive. Uh, some people say, well, what a, what's the covering? You know, is there a second covering? Is there a cloth covering? I think verse 15 puts it plainly. Uh, it, the hair has been given for, in Marshall's interlinear Greek English, says the long hair instead of a veil has been given her. If you, if you read through the chapter, it doesn't identify a covering noun until it gets to verse 15. And the covering noun is the long hair. So it seems pretty clear. Now, what I did is I did some research to look to see what various scholars who did not seem to have a personal agenda, or even maybe if they did, if they had their own agenda that wasn't the same as ours, what they would have to say. So I'd like to just run through this briefly to show you not just what a UPC author might say, but what various authors might say. So if you span the spectrum, uh, Robert Gundry, a, a very well-known conservative scholar, listen to what he says. Paul's instructions on the head covering of women are traditionally understood in terms of veiling, though not with the kind of veil that covers the face as well as the head. On the other hand, he never uses the specific Greek word for a veil, and he says that a woman's long hair is given her for a covering. In either case, his concern is to maintain a visible distinction between women women and men with respect to long and short hair. Okay, you go to some social scientists, uh, Bruce Malina and Jerome Nary. These are not um, conservative Bible scholars. These, they come from a social scientific study of the New Testament. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of honor and shame in the socialization of males and females in the ancient Mediterranean world. To know the gender of someone was already to know a whole set of norms to which they must conform if they were to be honorable in that society. I want you to notice this. They're not arguing that we should do this. They're not trying to make a theological point. They're just saying this is what the first century was like. This is what the Bible said. Whether we agree or disagree, this is what the Bible says. Such expectations formed clear cultural norms about what clothes, Deuteronomy 22.5, hairdos, 
1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 14, and sexual partners, Romans 1, 26, 27, are appropriate to males and females. Now, they just term, put it in terms of culture, which is what modern theologians typically do. But for us, the Word of God is not merely culture. The Word of God is authoritative. So what they just relegated to first century culture, we say is the Word of God. Because it's expressed statements of the Word of God. So even though they're coming from a different theological perspective, they're being honest about what the text says. They don't think the text is important, but they're telling you what it says. We think the text is important. All right, and notice how they link. It's all, it's all in the same principle, the identity of male and female, which determines your sexual relationships that are appropriate which, of course, we would say should be within marriage, but it determines what marriage relationship is appropriate. It determines what dress is appropriate. It determines what kind of hair is appropriate. It's the same principle running throughout. Now, here from the liberal extreme, Bart Ehrman, who would be considered quite a liberal critic, who doesn't believe the New Testament is the Word of God, but at least he tells you what the New Testament says. Paul maintained that there was still to be a difference between men and women in this world. To eradicate that difference, in Paul's view, was unnatural and wrong. It is quite clear from Paul's arguments that women could and did participate openly in the church alongside men. But they were to do so as women, not as men. And then Edith Castelli, a feminist, who would actually argue that Paul's wrong. But at least she's honest about what he said. Okay? Paul is quite concerned with the careful maintenance of gender differences in appearance, justified in part by the argument that nature is a conventional practice of men wearing their hair short and women wearing their hair long. Not simply because he thinks it is a good idea, but because he thinks that the created order demands it. And I think that too. Gender differences, according to these texts, are not the mere fruits of social conventions, but are God-given and divinely warranted. Now, she's going to argue Paul was wrong, but she at least is honest about what the text says and what is the purpose behind the text. All right. Well, if you just look at Scripture, and I'll, I'll give you quick examples here. I'm using the NIV. It's not just one verse of Scripture. If you go back to Isaiah 3.17... Uh, God found the, the proud and arrogant women of Judah, sinful women who are wearing all kinds of excessive adornment and uh, acting immodestly. And here is the judgment. Isaiah 3.17, Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. Verse 24, Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of, instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. So you see, in God's plan, that was a shame. Of course, some women today would say, so what? But God's standard was, this is a shameful thing. This is contrary to the natural order. In Jeremiah 7, 29, Jerusalem is depicted as a woman who has backslidden and turned away from God and lost her relationship with God. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a lament upon the barren heights, for the Lord hath rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. So here are scriptural examples that support what the Apostle Paul was trying to say. And then I got to thinking about it. I was reading about, in Revelation chapter 9, it talks about a demonic army, and it's trying to describe them. And it says, in Revelation 9, 8, their hair was like women's hair. And I got to thinking about that. 
what, what is women's hair like? Well, when you study it out, you cannot say women have a different texture. You can't say they have a different color. You cannot say that women's hair is, in principle, any different than men's hair. Except, in the first century, when John wrote those inspired words, it was universally considered that women would grow their hair long and men would cut their hair short. So when he says, get this picture, they had hair like women's hair, his first century audience were thinking, oh, they had long hair. Now, this is kind of a subtle point, but notice this. If the early churches were no longer following Paul's teaching. Now, Paul taught in the A.D. 50s when he wrote Corinthians. Uh, John probably wrote when? In the A.D. 80s or 90s, the book of Revelation. Probably the A.D. 90s. So one generation later, 40 years later, the church was still following the same principles because he could just make a reference. They had hair like women's hair, and nobody said... What does that mean? They all knew it was expected that they knew what that would mean, that women have long hair. If you said that today, oh, he has women's hair. Well, we might know that, but in general society, people might say, what does that mean? But in that day, it was still understood. So, the point is, God has established a distinction between male and female. And he wants us to display this distinction in outward appearance, by the way we dress, and by our hair. Now, talking about the hair length, some people say, well, how long is long? Well, I, Paul says, doesn't even nature teach you? I think if you let your hair grow naturally, let nature decide how long it will be. Because some women's hair doesn't grow long. Some races, the hair doesn't necessarily grow long. Genetics has a lot to do with how long your hair will grow. But if you just let it grow long, which is part of the meaning of the word, to have long hair or let one's hair grow long, if you let your hair grow long, it's long. So people argue, well, you know, how long does it have to be? Does it have to go down to the floor or whatever? Well, in a practical sense, somebody might say, well, I think it's as long as it grows down to your waist or as long as it grows down to your shoulders. And then somebody could say, well, if you... If that's enough, could you take one quarter inch? Wouldn't that be enough? Well, well, sure. If, you're, if, if down to your shoulders is okay, then one quarter of an inch, God's not going to send you to hell over a quarter of the inch. And somebody else could say, well, what about a quarter of an inch from that? You know, so if you use human reasoning, you can pretty well justify anything you want to justify. In fact, if we're committed, which I've heard a lot of people say, well, I believe this is right, brother, and I just don't think you know, we should be so strict. If you don't say just let it grow, but you have any other measurement, you're being arbitrary, right? right. You're, you're having to go beyond the explicit statement of Scripture to being arbitrary. So people say, well, I don't want to be arbitrary. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to have rules. In practice, if you don't just say let it grow long, what happens? Just observe a body of people over time. You will find there is no principle left. You know, we want to teach principles. But you have to give practical application to the principles. If you don't give a practical application, you will abolish the principle. Now, if you were to go like the conservative scholars that would be represented in some of the remarks here, 
if you would go to their churches, they don't uniformly have all the women wear their hair to their waist or all the women wear their hair to their shoulders. They'll have women's hair as short as mine. They'll have women who have their hair cut off. And they, they won't make any distinction because once you abandon the practical principle, there is no other place to go. You can't say, well, stop here and no more because they have no scripture by which they can say, stop here. So once you just open the door you really have abandoned the position altogether. So I've always told the ladies of our church, if you just let it grow long, then it will certainly fulfill the meaning of the Scripture. If we try to set an arbitrary length, we don't have Scripture for it, and then we start playing, you know, it's kind of like the dress length. Well, you know, if, it's, if this is long enough, well, what about one quarter inch off of that? And, and pretty soon you, you give up trying to make any practical application. So at some point, you've got to just say, we need to be an example of what the Scripture is trying to teach us. Now, for a man, I think his hair should be noticeably short uh, in his own culture because the point is to make a clear distinction between male and female. So God wants that distinction to be manifest. Men should not wear clothing that's culturally associated with women and vice versa. And in each culture, we must uphold a distinction between male and female in our dress. And as I said, women should let their hair grow long. Let nature decide the length. Don't cut it or shave it. Men should wear their hair noticeably short compared to women in their culture. Now, here's an interesting point. In both of these teachings, you often hear, well, that was just the culture of that time. The Apostle Paul, in my view, expressly contradicted that view because he said, if anyone wants to argue about this, we do not have any other custom, nor do the churches of God. Well, in that day, you, the early church started in Jerusalem, so you had Jewish culture. Uh, it, the Palestinian Jews ex expanded to the Hellenistic Jews. It expanded to the Samaritans. It expanded to the Gentile world. By the time Paul wrote this, there were Gentile churches in Asia Minor, uh, on various provinces with various racial backgrounds and various languages spoken throughout Asia Minor. And then you had it into Greece. Corinth itself was in Greece, so you had uh, those churches, uh, Greek-speaking, and then you w w had Roman uh, Rome was already had Christians in it. You had Roman-speaking Jews. So we had a multiplicity of cultures by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He did not say because of the cultural conditions in Corinth, because of the unique teachings, because of the unique pagan situation of Corinth. You read lots of commentaries and they say, well, it was due to Corinthian culture. It was due because of what the pagans were doing. It was due because of what the Corinthian church was doing in Corinth. But Paul actually says all the churches of God which span many cultures, all of us have the same teaching. So why shouldn't that apply today? We say, well, our culture doesn't teach it. The Word of God supersedes our culture. You know, my parents went to Korea's missionaries, and they tried to teach people to worship joyfully, exuberantly, raise your hands, clap your hands. The Koreans would say, we're Asians. We're uh, not demonstrative like you Americans. We're not wild and exuberant and boisterous like Americans are. It's not our culture. Don't make us do this. And my dad said, well, if you go to traditional churches in America, you will not see people clapping their hands and raising their hands and speaking in tongues. You will see them quiet, sedate, and a traditional order, and so on. He said, it's not American culture. It's not Korean culture. It's Bible culture. Yeah. 
And so we've got to call people to the example of the Scriptures, of the Word of God. So in every culture, these distinctions are important. This should be the practice of all the churches of God in every culture. You know, I've had people use certain arguments. They say, well, you know, we're going to leave it up to each individual, or we're going to to teach the principle but not make applications, or we don't think the Scripture speaks about that. Well, let's, let's think about this honestly. If you say Deuteronomy 22.5 has no relevance today, it's Old Testament. Well, not to mention the Old Testament says that same chapter talks about not raping. It talks about adultery and fornication in, in the same book. So you can't just throw everything out. But if you honestly say, I don't think that Deuteronomy 22.5 applies at all today, then to be consistent, you should be able to say, If my pastor wants to start coming to church wearing a dress, there is no scripture that deals with that issue. It's purely a cultural thing. It's purely a personal thing. It's a personal conviction. If my pastor's wife wants to shave her head, there's no scripture that deals with it. If 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't speak to the issue, if that's just Corinthian culture, then if my pastor's wife wants to just shave her head and from now on out, and this is the way she wants to live. I have no scripture. I might not like it, but to each his own. That's what we would have to say. But if we say, no, there's something wrong with that picture, then we've got to say it's a scriptural thing. And if it's a scriptural thing, we've got to apply the scripture across the board. We can't just apply the scripture where we personally like it or where our culture seems to favor it. We've got to apply it when culture doesn't think it's important or when personal preferences go against it. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul appealed, doesn't even nature teach you? He's not appealing to culture. He's not even appealing to scripture. He's appealing to the natural order of things. And we don't think of nature as a pagan female deity. When we say doesn't even nature teaches it, what, what are we saying? The natural order as instituted by God. In other words, Paul says, go back and read Genesis 1. Which is why I decided to start there tonight. He said, go back to God's creation and you'll find out what God intended. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them male and female. So Paul says, when I tell women to have a distinctive appearance in the the outward appearance, letting their hair grow long, when I say it's a shame for a, a man to do that, I'm really just going back to the Garden of Eden and instituting what God created. So he appeals to nature. Go back to the beginning. You know, I've heard some people say, well, he didn't say it's a sin. He didn't say you're going to hell. People ask him, Brother Bernard, is this a heaven or hell issue? I really think that's a misguided question from the start to start with. Because we understand our salvation is based by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of a checklist. If I do these 10 things, I'm saved. If I don't do these 10 things, I'm going to hell. You know, there are people that are more modest in dress than we are. That doesn't make them saved. There are people who may come to God. A woman may come to God with her hair completely cut off and come and be converted. And I don't think she has to wait six months uh, before she's holy. There could be a woman who has chemotherapy or hormonal situation or disease or whatever it may come. It doesn't mean she's unholy. 
We understand our, from start to finish, our salvation is based on our relationship of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said that, if we have faith in God, we will obey His Word. If we deliberately disobey the will of God, the Word of God, what does that say about our faith? That does raise a question, doesn't it? But I don't have to tell people, you're going to hell for this, you're going to hell for that. I'll bring the question back to them. Are you walking in by faith? Are you living by faith? Are you in relationship with the Lord? Are you obeying the Lord? Are you obeying God's word? I'm going to ask you the significance. Now, I don't mean that as a dodge. I mean that let's get everything back in the right perspective. Because here's what I think. If we make every, if we try to say, well, it doesn't say you're going to hell. That's really a legalistic approach. That's looking at the Bible as like a, a law book. And if it doesn't explicitly say it, then I feel free to do the contrary or do what I want. Now, you know, I may have mentioned this last time, but when it comes to certain things, I'm a legalist. When it comes to paying my taxes, I'm a legalist. Read the law. What I'm required to pay, I will pay. If there is a deduction, I'm going to take it. If there is an exemption, I'm going to take it. If there is a complicated description and it sounds to me like it applies to me, I will take it. And if you come up and say, well, you know, on the most conservative possible approach, you may possibly owe a little bit more. I'm going to say, I didn't hire you to give me advice. I'll, you know, read this. I'll be honest. I won't cheat. But I'm going to, I'm going to interpret it in my favor as much as I can. I love my country. But I don't feel obligated to support the government by any degree of money more than absolutely required. I'm a legalist. But when it comes to the Word of God, do you really want to be a legalist? Do you really want to say, God, unless you can nail it down and prove that I'll go to hell by doing this one thing, I'm going to do anything I'm big enough to do. That is not a relationship. If I, if I told my wife that, you know, I, I read the marriage license and I reviewed what the preacher said, and I did not find anywhere in there that I'm supposed to get up and make you coffee, or I'm supposed to do this, or I'm supposed to do that. So from now on, all bets are off. If it's not in the marriage license, don't count on it. How long do you think that would work? Not very long. You see, when it comes to serving God, we're talking about living by faith. Living by love. We're not talking about legalism. I, people accuse us of legalism. I say often they are the ones that are legalistic because they're saying, well, it says a shame. It doesn't say a sin. Wait a minute. Step back and look at it. If God says it's a shame to do this, isn't it pretty clear what he wants? If God says it's a glory to do that, isn't that pretty clear what he wants? Do you need any further instruction? If God says, this is what I like, and this is what I don't like, should you be asking, well, God, does that mean you're going to send me to hell? What kind of question is that? God is saying, I'm inviting you to relationship, and you're saying, uh, well, God, my main interest is as long as I can escape hell. I really don't want much of a relationship with you. I don't want to represent you. I don't want to get too close to you. In fact, I don't want anybody to know I'm associated with you as long as you get me out of hell. But if, if God says, this is what I would like, then we ought to be first in line to say, we're your people. We want to represent you in our creation.
Now, let me summarize this. What's the big deal? It's a witness to society. You know, 50 years ago, or even 25 years ago, we, this might not be so evident. Well, why are you so strict? What does it matter? But in our day, the very concept of male and female is under attack. Now, even, even 20 years ago, we would not have thought that we were seeing homosexual marriage run rampant across the world. We would never even imagine that. But, and who knows if the Lord tarries another 10 years what we're going to be seeing. You can see by some of the things I read where people want to go. Homosexual marriage is just the first little thing. That, you know, it's a lot of categories that people are creating and inventing. And I don't think we need to be harsh, hateful, antagonistic. It's nothing to do with homophobia or anything like that. But it's a, a witness to what we not only believe is traditional, but what we believe is scriptural. What we believe goes back to God's creative intent. And if the church does not represent it, where is the world going to see it? Little kids, now I can, as, as adults, we can talk about those examples from Wikipedia and say, what are they talking about? Or I can't believe that. Or that's crazy. Nobody in their right mind would believe that. But we have kids that are growing up, that's all they are taught. Who is going to ever say, you know, it wasn't always this way. And it's really not this way now in God's plan. If the church is not an example, where are the children and the young people of our world going to ever get this clear message? That there is a distinct role for a male, a distinct role for a female, and that's the plan of God. We are a witness in a pagan society. We may be a small minority, but who knows? You know, Abraham interceded for Sodom, and he got down to just a few righteous people. God would have spared the city. I wonder if judgment is not stayed from our cities because of a few righteous people. As long as there's somebody bearing witness, could it be that God is extending grace and mercy in time for revival? Because we are bearing witness. And then the other point I would make is this is the principle of authority. You know, even in the Garden of Eden before sin, God required obedience. It's one thing that was forbidden to demonstrate that he was God and Adam and Eve were not. Even in the Garden of Eden before sin, they had distinct roles to fulfill. Those roles are not equivalent. So this is God's idea. This is not just our idea. And if we love God and we live by faith in him, we will obey his word. Now, something really interesting I thought about. God never forces us to do his will. We always have the choice. Again, even in the Garden of Eden before sin. I mean, you and I would have probably said, God, why don't you just ban the devil from the garden? You know, get the snake out of there. We won't have the problem. But even in the Garden of Eden, God said, I want people to love me, and the only way they can love me is to choose freely, which means I've got to take a risk. They have to be able to choose what they're going to do. Now, if we're going to live for God, we choose. We repent. We have faith. If God calls us to preach, he doesn't make us. We have a choice of whether we're going to preach or not. Or whatever ministry or role you have, we always have a choice to make the commitment, don't we? Well, you and I were born genetically as either male or female. We didn't have a choice in that. But by the way we live, by the dress we wear, by our hair, we can consciously ratify God's choice 
or we can oppose God's choice. We can say, God, I accept the role as a man or woman, as husband or wife, as father or mother, that you have foreordained for me. And I believe that through our hair and through our dress, God allows us to have a choice of if we're going to follow God's plan or not. And I believe even the angels look to see if we're following that plan and if we make that choice. In other words, this is our opportunity to voluntarily ratify God's will. And when we do, we're the ones who are blessed. It's, it's so sad to say, well, do I get out of hell if I do this? Or can you prove to me that I'm going to hell? That really is not the question. Although, if we're deliberately disobedient, I think that does speak volumes about our faith or lack thereof, which in the end will, will determine our destiny. But I think a more practical, immediate, and beneficial thought is when we choose God's way, we're the ones who are blessed. We're the ones who are blessed. In a society that's confused and mixed up, you read about these people making these choices, and you have to shake your head and say, that's sad. They think this is freedom. They think this is liberty. And their lives are just basically mixed up. Ten years from now, what's their life going to be like? Twenty years from now, what's their life going to be like? When they tried all this and that doesn't give them satisfaction, what are they going to do after that? And what kind of havoc are they going to cause in their own lives, their children's lives? What about the kids that grow up in this kind of environment? But when we make a choice to do God's will, it settles so many questions about our lives, doesn't it? Settles so many questions about relationships, about direction, about future. And we're the ones who are blessed because we have a God-given identity. We have a role. We have a purpose. We have a goal. And we have a purpose that's beyond mere biology. It's beyond more than an accident of evolution. But it's the creative intent and purpose of Almighty God to think that I have a place in God's plan. I'm the one who's blessed most of all. When I follow God's plan, I'm the one who reaps the benefits. So I believe that we as a church, not only for our own sake, but our kids' sake, our society's sake, if we will be clear witnesses that in the beginning God created male and female, and He wants us to look, act, and dress according to the role in which He created us, then we're the ones who are blessed most of all. Let's stand together. And so I submit this to you because after all, it's your choice. I can explain it, but you're the ones that has to decide God's purpose and will for your life. So I'd like for us just to go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to confirm His word right now as I turn this back over to the pastor. Dear Lord, we you. Hello, thank you again for joining the podcast of First Church. We're so honored that you were able to stop by and listen to this message today. Pray it was a blessing to you. I want to remind you uh, that you can get connected with us on our social media accounts by looking up First Church Woodland or First Church Vacaville, both on Facebook and Instagram. We would love to get connected with you there. Uh, also, you can go to our website, firstchurch.app, and download our app from there and stay connected that way. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining and we'll see you in the next podcast.